21 CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Thank you for listening to my Run Your Life podcast series. This is Andy Vasley, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. Aaron Beatley from the University of Kentucky. Aaron is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Promotion, and he's worked very closely with Dr. Bob Pangrazi over the last several years. Aaron actually completed his doctorate under Dr. Bob Pangrazi at Arizona State University way back in the 90s. I'm sure Aaron won't like that reference to way back in the 90s. But uh, since then, Aaron has done some pretty amazing work in our profession. He's co-authored the last few editions of the textbook Dynamic Physical Education with Dr. Bob Pangrazi. Um, I just got my hands on a copy of that textbook, so I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Um, In today's episode, we delve into uh, the impact that social media, in particular Twitter, has had on our profession and the ability that it has to improve our practice. However, we do kind of outline certain factors that we need to be aware of when becoming a socially connected educator. As well, we share our views about what quality physical education means to us, and Aaron kind of sums up what his vision is in regards to creating, I guess, a, a, a deeper and more meaningful physical education program that helps kids to take action in their lives to uh, become more physically active. So I hope you enjoy the interview. You can connect with Aaron on Twitter. Just check out the show notes afterwards. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Okay, Aaron, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and taking the time out to uh, meet me on Skype to have a discussion. So um, I'm talking to Aaron Beal. Um, Aaron, do you want to introduce yourself and just uh, tell everybody a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, my name is Aaron Beatley. I'm currently a professor at the University of Kentucky, where I train PE teachers and I do research and fun stuff related to physical activity and write and speak and things. And my a little bit of my background, I, when I graduated high school, I had zero intent of going to college. My dad came home one day and said, congratulations, you're going to Northern Kentucky University. And I said, okay, I'll go. To, I'll go. And really had no clue what I wanted to do and tinkered around. And I took the six-year route and finally graduated. Um, and then I went to Texas Christian University and got my master's degree in exercise physiology. And a little towards the end of my undergraduate, I realized I love kids and I wanted to work with kids. And so then at, at TCU, they knew that. So I was starting to gear things towards working with kids in some way, shape, or form related to exercise physiology. And and then I went to a one of the professors there, Carol Pope, said, here, you need to go to this workshop by this Pangrazy guy. So I said, okay. And I went to the workshop and it, 10 minutes into it, I said, that's what I want to do. And so I went up and talked to Bob afterwards, and he told me that I needed to teach. So 
I got on the phone and started calling every school in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and, and was hired at the Episcopal School of Dallas, and I taught for... What year was that? Uh, uh, About? Nine, I started teaching in 98. Okay. I think it was. Um, so I was hired at Episcopal School of Dallas. I worked with two phenomenal teachers, Chris Brockhagen and Bill Jones, who are still great friends and are still phenomenal PE teachers. Chris is still at the Episcopal School of Dallas, and Bill is at the University School in Cleveland. Phenomenal physical educators, open-minded, couldn't ask for two better people to teach with. And then assistantship came open at ASU, and I took it and got my doctorate with Bob, which was probably Arizona. the best three years of my life professionally anyway. Arizona State and, University. Yeah, Arizona yeah. State University, and then in, in Tempe, right by Phoenix, then I went to a university in California for a year, and then I came to, to UK in 2004 and have been here ever since. Um, again, research, training PE teachers, doing workshops, presenting, writing, et cetera. Uh, excellent. And uh, why don't you tell everybody about your book? You wrote it, um, you continue to uh, re update editions of your book with Bob? Yeah, I've, uh, I, I, you know, it's one of those. I'm luckier than I am good. I worked with Bob, and, and one of the independent studies I did at ASU was to help write a book called Pedometer Power, and that's in its second edition. It's still out there around. And then Bob, in uh, the 16th edition, I believe, asked me to come on and be a co-author on the Dynamic Physical Education for Elementary Children, and been doing that, and we're starting to work on the 19th edition now. And oh, wow. my wife, Heather Irwin, works on the secondary version of it. Um, so it's a, it's a great experience. I'm, again, I, I am luckier than I am good, but I'm honored to be a part of it. It's a, it's a great experience. And it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's an interesting experience as well, writing books and, you know, trying to change some things the way people think and, and, and direct the field, but also, um, make sure it's quality and those types of things. So it's, it's extremely fun. Yeah. Um, so we've got an interesting story here, don't we? <clears throat> Would you say? I know where you're going. Yeah. Um, so hang on. There's the David Bowie song. Sorry about the uh, David Bowie interruption in the background. It's the school Lisa bell <laughs> at Nanjing International School. It'll be over in a second. Um, anyways, uh, it, you know, I know that we wanted to talk a little bit about social media and the impact that it has on, on uh, physical education and education in general. But why don't you tell everybody um, from your perspective how it, how it, uh, how we met, and how we connected? Okay, a little bit of background on that. Uh, two years ago, uh, several people heard me say this. I said Twitter's dumb, and I, you know, made the traditional comment: shouldn't it be if you're tweeting, shouldn't it be Twitter? And if you're if Twitter, shouldn't it be Twits? And and. I, I didn't understand the whole idea, and finally, I, I started getting into it. But frankly, to, to follow some um, sports talk shows and, and that kind of thing, and then follow some artists that my daughters were like to listen to to find out when they were in concert, and then it branched off into oh, I could listen to this PE person, and and so I started to get into it more and more. And about last September, I think it was, I started to um, get into it more, and and from there, um, I was introduced to Voxer. And one day I got a box from this Andy Vassus of something. I know what it was. But I started talking to Andy. That was, this was a Monday, mind you. 
a Monday in, I think it was October, maybe November. And then on, so Andy and I, you remember this, back, yeah. back and forth about a variety of topics, motivation, measurement, all these different things, things how we can implement PE, just a array of topics. And then on Sunday, Andy said, um, would you be interested in coming to Hong Kong next weekend? <laughs> and, and, and we are a blended family. So Heather and I have four girls, and you can feel sorry for me later, that's fine. But we have four girls, and it's great. And yeah. we, every other weekend, we have the girls, and then on the opposite weekends, we usually have a lot planned. Only weekend in three or four months that we didn't have anything going on, so we hopped on a plane, I think it was Thursday. Yeah. There, we were in the air. I forget the details. We were in the air 44 hours, and we were there 40 hours or something. But That was crazy. That's how I, that's <laughs> yeah. how I got to meet Andy face-to-face. I'd yeah. fly across the world. I remember that I, uh, Dean Dudley, who we both know very well and we're very fond of the man, um, he uh, had told me about you and that I should connect with you and that you were doing really, really great things. So I sought you out on Twitter and, and then found you on Voxer. And that's when I started to, to um, send you some messages and we started to communicate back and forth. And I remember being in Shanghai, I was doing some work at a school and um, right. that night I went out for dinner on my own and I decided to walk back to the hotel, which was about an hour walk. And it was during that time where we boxed back and forth. So I'm walking through. It's a rainy evening in Shanghai. Yeah, you got ran up once, as I recall. I know. And and so we're we're just uh, going back and forth. And and I think that's it was a couple of weeks after that that the APEC conference was going to happen in Hong Kong, and they needed a keynote speaker because the one keynote speaker, Ted from uh, Toronto pulled out because of an injury so um you were willing to jump on a plane and fly to hong kong and that's where we met uh face to face in person a week after we started boxing so that was very cool oh, only ted could, could not show up for a keynote because he was injured yeah yeah <laughs> playing football <laughs> collapsed lung um so Love i you, ted. i guess th- this leads into uh, i know we wanted to talk about uh, twitter and social media so um i guess you know twitter for me has been a great tool for me to connect. There's no question about it. And I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing had I not embraced Twitter and connected with the people that I've connected with on Twitter. But I think there's some caveats there as well. Um, but what's your take on, on Twitter and the impact that it has on our profession? It's very similar. To, I mean, as a, just as a, as a qualifier, I think it's an unbelievable utility. Um, I wrote that blog for go for a while back called Twitter is dumb and based on that quote but I, I wrote something in it that it's amazing to me that you can connect with a teacher in Australia they can video how they do a lesson and send it to you via Twitter or Boxer and you can see it within 20 minutes and be able to replicate it and I know um, some folks in Australia have like guest taught via Skype and things and yeah. so that type of stuff is I think there's so much use for it having said that my, I, I look back, I think it was my first tweet ever what, before I realized the culture of Twitter and that, you know, it's kind of a polite thing. And my first tweet ever was, did anybody even read that article? Well, I forget the details of what was happening, but basically they... Had you sent an article out? Of a research. Had, had you sent an article out on Twitter? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. What happened was there was a bunch of people were, were retweeting, oh, look at this program. Look at the benefits this program's had. Look at the benefits. Oh, it's all, 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 it's how great is this program. Yet when you open up, you didn't have to read the whole article. You just had to go to the article and read the abstract to read it clearly said that the program didn't work. But they'd done some spinning and things. And 
so I just tweeted out, has anybody ever read this article? And so that, again, is somewhat of a jaded start to the whole world of Twitter for me. But, but I think that's where the, the, like you said, the caveat lies is that we have to be very careful on not just accepting things for face value. Again, understand that I've got some of my training and in life in general, I guess, maybe it's a good or bad thing. I'm kind of skeptical of most things and don't think things for, you know, somebody, somebody puts a picture on Facebook that's, oh, look at this picture. My first reaction is it's got to be fake. And that's the way when I, when I read something like, oh, this program, give kids more recess and they'll do better in math. My first reaction is, let's see some data. Now, having said that, I'm also one that I think we go overboard on that. We need more data. We need more data. But back to the social media issue, I think the, I think we just have to be very careful on, on what we do because the reality of it is, is anyone with a phone becomes an expert and that's how it's perceived. And that, you know, I live in a world up until Twitter, I lived in a world, but if you got something published that people could read, it had been refereed and had been vetted and looked through and edited and challenged, that's where I'm coming from. challenged as well. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and, and I think, again, I think there's so much good on Twitter. That's why I'm, I'm not anti-Twitter. I think there's, but we just have to be careful that what we look at, we question it and say, gosh, that makes no sense. Why would we say that? And, and what, for example, the one that goes on quite a bit is not as much now, but it used to is, um, kids that have higher fitness test scores do better on math and, to me, that just intuitively, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would they just do better on math? And, you know, I know a lot of lines of research and things have been done, and there's pros and cons to that whole line. But we just can't just accept that and go spread that because the danger of spreading that and saying, look at this, look at that, and retweeting is when somebody finds out that it's not true, then we all look like rubes. And, yeah. and then we all kind of look silly and the field looks silly. So, I think that's kind of. I think what you I think what you're saying really does resonate because I I remember being in teachers college and uh, it was kind of the the launch of of the the teacher education program my my one year of teacher training uh, back at the University of Windsor the teacher ed program where it was a really intensive year of being in schools and and uh, having mentor teachers and <clears throat> to kickstart that whole process the dean of education said the biggest piece of advice that i can give you is to have a healthy skepticism uh, skepticism for authority and i've always taken that and and remembered that because in this case it's having a healthy skepticism for for what you see on twitter and and to as you said um anybody with a phone can post and that doesn't obviously necessarily mean that they're an expert or they have even an in-depth knowledge where oftentimes they're just sharing what they, they do. And people perceive that as being expert status. Absolutely. And, and what you said about um, skepticism of authority, Dr. Chuck Corbin at ASU, we had classes with him and he always said that you have to appeal to authority as well. So if you're going to say, you know, kids aren't active, you, you need to have data. You can't just say it. But then you also have to be skeptical of the data to say, wow, this doesn't make any sense and understand that, you know, there are some limitations to research. And obviously that we have to understand that we can't just, um, as I said, when over in Hong Kong, I don't need um, data to make some of my decisions, but some of my decisions, you need data. And so it's a tricky balance. And, and I think that's the 
Well, you said you don't need data to to know that a kid needs a hug. I remember you said That's that exactly in your right. keynote. Yeah, yeah, you don't need that. I don't need data to tell me that I probably shouldn't shouldn't step out in front of a bus. I, you don't need that. You know, there's some things that are common sense and some things that aren't. And and again, I, I you know, I live in the data world, and I think in that thing, I said we shouldn't use data. And then my very my power, that keynote I gave in, at APEC was, I said, don't worry about data. And then my very next slide was all data. So you know, it's hard to get away from. I think we need it. I'm not saying we don't, but I think sometimes we need to use common sense on things. Um, One of the things that I've found that has been frustrating, to be very honest, and this is in the work, you know, when I was teaching and, and I was, you know, I, I was sharing on my blog the ideas and approaches that I was using in my PE program. And I, I saw from my own perspective, with my own eyes, that my students were engaged in PE and that they were, many of them were, were um, who had, uh, not like PE at the very start when they first came to me, I saw that they were engaged and they were liking uh, PE more. But I couldn't conclusively say that what I was doing had an impact on them liking PE more. And that's when I really started to question my own practice and start to try to connect with like Dean and uh, Dean Dudley and Ashley Casey and begin to ask questions about my own practice. But the reality is that a lot of, I think this is the reality, is that a lot of the research out there supports middle school and high school PE as opposed to elementary PE. And this is, I think you're one of the first ones that I connected with, with more of a, uh, who has more of an elementary focus to their research. So is that accurate that you think that there's more research out there to support middle school and high school PE as opposed to elementary? That's a great question. I would, I, 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 in my recent life, I've been involved with comprehensive school physical activity programs over here in the U.S. or CISPAPs or CSPAPs. Or, and I started off with that with some um, position statements and things. And what we found with that is there's more work related to that being done in the elementaries. Not a lot of research, but because the elementaries are easier to manipulate than the middle schools and high schools as far as not manipulate, manipulate from a research perspective. So um, I, I'll be honest with you. I think... I think part of that, what you're seeing is the international versus the U.S., because I would say there's probably not a ton on middle school and high school in the U.S., more on elementary. Um, I, but having said that, I think there's probably a huge gap in both areas. I mean, I don't think we have much data in any way, shape, or form right. on physical education, particularly physical education that is being used with the perspective of a public health trying to promote lifelong physical activity. And so I've been meeting lately with Steve Harvey from West Virginia and some other folks to look at how we can look at a variety of models and push towards that. Um, now, I will say, I mean, again, I, I, this kind of relates to this that related to some other skepticism on um, social media and related to this. I remember when I started um, getting into this in, in undergrad, I, I got on, I think they were called forums or something like that. I'm changing gears yeah. a little bit, though. So, um, and all it was was a bunch of teachers that wanted games, middle, high school games, some elementary. And I got off of them because it eventually it got so frustrating that they were worried about, does it count if their foot's over the line or if one foot's in the air and they hit the ball? It was just so... Activity um, driven. Yeah, big time, eh? Yeah, and, and just games. It's like, just make... that. That's, a, that's fine. I mean, again, games, there's a ton of games in our books. Games are great. I have no problem with games. But... I think that where it changes gears a little bit is that, that we need 
more focus on uh, teaching practices. And we need research. This is why I jumped from the research on that, like you talked about elementary, middle, and high school. We need more research on these. What practices do we use that maximize activity, yet teach, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. I jumped a little bit there, but no, no, I think totally. that's an important topic that needs to be looked at. And, and so many times, and I understand why teachers want games. I mean, that, I understand why they want activities. I understand all that. But the context within which those games are delivered, I think, is is missing. And, and I, you see it in, in, on Twitter as well. I mean, there are lots of great games that are put, put out there, some not so good. But I don't, you know, I can see a great activity, but I really don't know how it was framed and how it was set up and what teaching was used to get the students there. For example, if, if it's a great activity, did it take 20 minutes to get that activity set up and, and explain it to them and get it to the point of the video I saw? Or was it, which if it does, it does take 20 minutes, the game's probably too complex or there's some other issue. And that's the piece that's a little missing, I think. Nathan Horn put some stuff out there recently um, that showed his teaching as opposed to the students being active, which I thought was great. It opens up the door for a ton of conversations. It takes a lot of guts yeah. um, to put out your, put your stuff out there. Teaching is very personal and, but it takes a lot of guts to do that. And I think that when we can do that more and talk more about our teaching, as opposed to these wonderful games we have, I mean, I think games are great, but I think we got, we have to start some balance there. Yeah. I think, um, again, what you're saying resonates because, I was looking at, I, I think you sent me a link to the, uh, the NFL PE teacher of the year, um, I forget his name, but I looked at that 20 minute lesson and it was a dribbling lesson. And one of the first things that as I watched that and I was looking to see what this, the teacher was doing, do you remember his name? I'll think of it at some okay. point. So it's on, it's on uh, PE Central if, if you want to see yeah, it, if you're listening so. to this podcast. and. Uh, the teacher was voted, uh, he got an award for, for teaching phys ed, by, awarded by the NFL. And the demo lesson that he, he sent the NFL uh, was the same lesson that Mark Manros put up on PE Central. So when I was watching it, I, I was trying to kind of look at everything that was happening. And to me, there was a lot of great stuff that was happening. And it's clear, um, uh, very clearly, you can see that he's a very good teacher. But I wanted to see it from a, a backed up perspective. I wanted to see the whole teaching space. I wanted to see all the kids and what they were doing and, and how he was moving around where the camera was specifically on him with one student. And the most valuable part of the work that I do now working with schools is going in to observe lessons. And as, as a, a researcher and a lecturer, you know, you go in and observe pre-service teachers all the time where you're standing back looking at their lessons. And I think that to me says way more than just zeroing in on the teacher interaction with just a few students during a lesson. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Paul, Paul Rosengard has been has tweeted about this a couple of times and I agreed with it and I've tweeted something similar, but nothing will improve your, will change your teaching and improve your teaching like videoing yourself and teaching and not videoing just you. Video, like you said, the whole class. When I was teaching, we were forced enough to have a big loft above so we put the camera up there and had a tape. If you don't, if you're listening to this and don't know what a tape is, you can ask some yeah. older person. But we would tape it, and then we'd have to take it out and put it in a VCR. But, but it was VCR. so helpful. To, a VCR, to see. Like, old school, yeah, baby. Exactly. VCR, video cassette recorder. For those of you that, yeah. but I talk like that to my students too. They don't. But um, 
it was so helpful. It was, you know, the first thing I noticed when I was teaching, I was like, good heavens, smile once in a while. Act like you like what you're doing. I've been smiling. I had my hands in my pocket. I was so focused on content, content, content. I'm like, God, these kids must hate this lesson. I'm not smiling. I hate it, apparently. Okay. So um, <clears throat> nothing will change. And then you have to watch it once by yourself, but with someone or with some kind of systematic tool where you're looking at whether it's your teacher movement, the first names you use, how much activity the kids get, how much how much time do you spend instructing, at what point do the students start trailing off, those types of things, and watch it critically. It, you know, again, it's so personal. Now you, you, That's Aaron, what Aaron, you, watching it by yourself helps. I know that you use, um, you'll um, uh, work on, on putting pedometers on kids and measuring physical activity, which is obviously a great indicator of how active they are. But equally, do you think teacher talk time is just as important? I mean, that's what I, the first thing I do when I go observe is I'm looking for physical activity. I don't have pedometers when I go into these classes, but I'm just kind of assessing the levels of physical activity. But the first thing that I do will time, teacher talk time, when, when the whole group of students comes together and the teacher is talking to the whole group, I will time that and then stop it when the teacher is done and then time it again. And um, and then I will give them the, the stats on their own teacher talk time. And they're often absolutely shocked and flabbergasted yep. at the length of time that they talk. Absolutely. They have no idea. And I think that's probably, you know, a good measure to use. And, you know, at, at its crudest measure, it, it, you know, most of the time when the teacher's not talking, at least giving direct instruction or instructing the kids, the group, the kids are active. So the opposite of that is, you know, again, there, there's some variability there. Yeah. Absolutely. I think most teachers are not aware. Most teachers, I think there were some studies about this a while back, a long time, like 10, 15 years ago, that looked at um, teachers, who they interact with, males, females, gifted students, not gifted students, um, you know, and again, how many names they don't use. Um, I challenge teachers all the time when I were here, like, you, gotta, you have to know the kids' names. I mean, yeah. I know you have 600 kids, but... If you know them all, all you have to learn next year is kindergarten. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that that's a valuable tool to, for them. When I was teaching, I don't know if Bill Jones will ever listen to this, but we made, again, I'm telling them, we made cassettes. This is how old I am. Had to tape songs off the radio. We made cassettes that were 30 seconds for, we had three-year-olds and four-year-olds too when I talked. So for three and four-year-olds and some kindergartners, we made cassettes that was 30 seconds of, me talk, of, of, 30 seconds of music and 30 seconds of silence. When the music was off, I could give instruction. But when the music came back on, the kids were instructed. You don't listen anymore. You get to be active. When the so it, I was forced to learn how to give my instructions to four-year-olds in 30 seconds. What you find out, and you're seeing now, I talk pretty fast, but you can say a lot in yeah. 30 seconds. But I didn't know that if I didn't video myself. I'm like, golly, you talk way too much, Beatley. Yeah. And that kind of thing was very valuable. And that's the kind of stuff I think social media is going more towards um, slowly. Again, I know others have probably done it. I just know that video of that Nathan Horn put out there that was um, it was great because it showed how he, whether you agree with it or not, was not the issue. It was like, at least you're showing the teaching. Because I asked him, I said, well, they weren't real active. And he said, well, I cut out a lot of the activity because I wanted to focus on the instruction of how he was doing a, a what he, he was doing a, a jigsaw with yeah. learning and creating tag names. So it was a great lesson. I mean, in the content, and, and then, so the activity was there, and back and forth. So, but that kind of conversation, and it takes guts. I mean, you know, it's not comfortable. Um, 
you know, it's not even comfortable having a keynote put on YouTube. You want to go back and watch it like, golly, I said that, or you know, yeah, get your yeah. hands out of your pockets, those types of things. Yeah. And, but it, you know, it, I know that now. And, and so I, you know, I changes in the presentation next time I give it same thing with teaching, you learn things and yeah. it, you know, it's tough. People don't like it. Criticism, that kind of thing, but to get yeah. better, you have to do it. Hey, uh, on a, on a side note, what, what is your biggest worry about our profession? Um, does anything come to that, mind straight away? Yeah, that, that we're, I guess our refusal to make substantive, uh, substantive changes. Um, by that, I mean, really, again, I, I'm obviously biased towards this, um, but to adopt that, you know what, we are about physical activity and we need to figure out ways to effectively promote physical activity as physical educators because I'm not saying skills are not important. I'm not saying fitness is not important and I can, that's a whole other podcast, but we hang on to that and that hasn't resonated with society. Society doesn't, that hasn't resonated with public health, et cetera. We can say, look, we, the why of what we do, if you, um, there's a, the why of what we do is that we love kids and we care about their health. And ultimately, that leads to physical education and a need for physical education. That's why we do what we do. We can market that. We can talk about that. And we don't do that enough. And if we don't, I just think, you know, it's slowly but surely, you know, probably not my lifetime, probably not my kids' lifetime, but I, it, it, it seems like we're losing ground on the, what we're allowed to offer and how much impact we can really have on kids. By no means am I the sky is falling guy and um, chicken little and that kind of thing. I think we've made lots of strides towards that and we're moving towards that. And I think some people that have been against promoting physical activity and things and pushing for physical activity as a result of physical education, et cetera, have started to see that and, and started to see that you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We're still, we still need. <sighs> Shit. Okay. <laughs> Aaron. Yeah. Sorry, um, it cut off quickly there, uh, or it cut off, but I got you back, and uh, okay. I, I said a profan I said a profanity when it cut off, but I'm just going to leave it in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've recovered, but let's just shut the video off right now. Okay. So. Um, yeah, and, and what I liked about your keynote, I know we just have a few more minutes, but what I really liked about your keynote in um, Hong Kong was um, really making people aware that, and this is from your perspective and your work and, and your passion about PE, is the idea about we need to create programs that will enable young people to take initiative to be physically active in their own lives through a means that they they connect with. And you gave the example of gardening, which yeah. I love. So can you just give a little bit of uh, quick background into why you said gardening should be a part of PE or that it, it would be beneficial to have it a part of PE? I haven't seen the most recent data, but the data I refer to, it's pretty simple, is that we say that we're providing kids with the skills, knowledge, and attitude to be active for the rest of their life or something to that effect. Yet our physical education programs focus on team sports, and there's data on that, and, and sports in general, but team sports. And if you look at the data on what adults do to be active, gardening is in the top ten. And, and most people say, well, why would we do gardening? Well, if you're promoting lifelong activity and gardening is in the top ten, that's what you should be doing. 
And again, I'm not a gardener by any stretch of the imagination, so it pushes my comfort zone as well. But I think that's something we have to look look into as, as something that if we are going to say we are about lifelong physical activity, there's, there are data to suggest that the physical activity from gardening has health benefits, and then gardening needs to be a part of it. It's what kids do. And, and it, that trip to Hong Kong was great for me because it allowed me to see a different perspective that we need regional-specific physical education. There have been some folks lately posting on Twitter I wish I could think of their names right now, but that are doing snowshoeing. Joe, yeah, that's Joe, Joe Bailey, Matt Palmeroy. I forget who yes. else, but that, that was really yes. cool to see that. That was wonderful. It, it is. It's really good. And, and it's that, that, you know, where does that meet? You know, there's no standard for that. There's no, you know, there's no outcomes related to that, but that's what they need. But, you know, a kid in, in, in Southern California or in Southern Australia probably doesn't need much on skiing. But, you know? but the I mean, thing, Aaron, the, the thing about the snowshoeing is, yeah, there's nothing snowshoe specific in the Shape America's uh, student learning outcomes, but they can still connect to some outcomes without question. Yes, absolutely. And that's the, that's the beauty of this is like, let's think outside the box. I mean, you know, Maybe gardening in the middle of a desert somewhere doesn't make sense to teach that in PE, but if it does, then we should be looking into it and finding out because I know, I don't know about anywhere across the world, but in the U.S., I looked this up, I think it is 54 or 55% of people in the U.S., maybe it's higher than that, live in the state that they were born and raised in, and which means that if I was born, I was born and raised in Ohio, so I'm a little bit of a maverick, I guess. But not a lot of skiing there. There's some. And you could say, okay, we'll do, there's some places to go, so we'll do that. But I think that speaks what you're asking about the gardening is if we are going to promote lifelong activity, that's where we need to go. We need to look at what the adults in our area do and, and work to create a per- curriculum that exposes students to those activities and makes them, again, exposes them to the point that they think, wow, that's kind of fun. Some will choose to do it, some won't. But we, if you never expose them to it, they don't even know the activity exists. So we have to have that and expose them to those activities. Yeah, and and I think the again the the biggest uh, I think constraints that teachers feel is if they start messing around with the curriculum. I think what I was saying, Aaron, was um, the biggest constraints that teachers feel when it comes to tinkering with their curriculum and changing units is suddenly. If they go outside the box, they can no longer address and meet the student learning outcomes at, as mandated by Shape America, right? But that's, I, I just, I think that's yes. bullshit, to be honest. I think that it, you can absolutely tinker and, and create new opportunities for um, learning in your PE program and still meet student learning outcomes. Absolutely. I just made that point tonight with a group of teachers here in Lexington. We um, a lot of them had never been exposed to spike ball, and so we and I had just gone over but at the beginning of it the new outcomes document from Shape America, and I said you could go through there and probably, probably find twenty to twenty five different outcomes related to spike ball, and that's your job as a teacher. You have to know and don't get strangled by those outcomes that you think oh skipping is on the outcome, so we're going to skip for forty five minutes. That's not what that is intended for, and that we can do what we're trying trying to do to promote lifelong activity and still meet those outcomes. In fact, you could argue some of them have to happen in order to promote lifelong activity. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's uh, Joey fight when he presents, um, he really emphasizes that. Um, 
I see on Twitter a lot, I'll see teachers post stuff and they'll say, we're, we're working on this outcome today, and it's just one outcome. Whereas uh, when Joey presents, he's saying, no, you can, you can meet a, a multitude of outcomes in, in one activity if it's designed in a specific way that sets up a learning environment that allows you to uh, explore those, those areas. So I think, again, not, as you said, not being strangled by the, the outcomes. Absolutely. I think that's a, you know, it's an, an issue. And I, you know, I, I think when you go, where, how many outcomes you cover is different when, and then when you look into assessments, you don't have to assess every outcome, every lesson. I mean, I think that's the other thing that teachers think, well, if I have, this is my outcome, I need to assess it that lesson. And that's not, you don't have to do that. I mean, that's, you can't do that. You, yeah. You'd spend too much time assessing and, and not teaching. Yeah, definitely. So I know you've got to run, but if you were to sum up in, let's say in under two minutes, um, oh, okay, you've got to sum up. Thanks. Okay, here you go. Here the you're you're uh, you're in the hot seat. So you've got to sum up your ideal report card for physical education, and your ideal physical education program. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks. Um, ideal report card is that what the first question was? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it would probably have some something to do with attitude towards physical activity. I mean, I, you know, I'm 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 not a I don't want to be held accountable for the skill level of students. Um, part of it is I've seen some of their parents' skill level, and I definitely don't want to be held accountable for it. I don't want to be held accountable for the fitness levels of kids. We know plenty of research on that. I don't want to be held accountable for um, knowledge when I, I have kids once a week at the most for thirty minutes. Um, I can be held accountable for the activity levels of students during PE. And there's, I was having some conversation today with Kevin Tiller about whether we need to worry about NVPA or PA. And he's got some great ideas. And I, so to get to your, I would worry more about their attitude towards physical activity. I think that kind of thing tracks. And if you've read a book by, um, I'm going to mess up her last name, Michelle Seeger called No Sweat. She quotes in there and talks about some of the clients she's worked with. And she says, there are a lot of people in this world that have never had a positive experience in physical activity. It's our job to give them that. And, you know, yeah, we need to teach skills. Yes, we need to teach about fitness. We need to expose them to fitness activities. Our curriculum does that. But I think I'm more concerned with the kids' attitude towards physical activity and whether they enjoy physical activity. Um, now, you could also argue that Beatley, that's more a reflection of the teacher. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and again, I'm trying to get this in two minutes. But And I, I, I think an ideal PE program would be one that um, – incorporates lots of different, I mean, again, I, I just think that there's so many different things that we can do in physical education and whether you're elementary, middle school and high school had a conversation recently with Justin O'Connor in Australia of, you know, letting action, letting kids take action and, and decide where they can be active and, and make decisions about that and, and take ownership of their activity space and their activity choices. And at the elementary level, exposing them to a variety of activities. And, and again, if we don't, don't expose, Expose them to it; they probably won't be exposed to it. Yeah. Um, so that's a roundabout way of not answering your question, I guess. But <laughs> I, I think I, that's I, where we need to go: is start yeah. thinking more about our job as physical educators to promote lifelong physical activity. And again, I agree, providing the skills, knowledge, and attitude to be active for the rest of their life. What I think we need to really focus on are what are the skills, what is the knowledge, and what are the attitudes they need to be active for the rest of their life. And it's going to vary from student to student. 
And but I think that's what we need to target as physical educators, and that opens a whole another fifteen to twenty podcasts on what yeah. we need to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, well, thanks for uh, kind of summarizing uh, your thoughts on physical education, and I wish we had more time, but uh, we'll we'll call it a show. And um, All right. I'll send you the link when this is out, and also I'll add your Twitter handle and and uh, any other links that you want to share with people, any research papers, anything, I'll add in the show notes. So thanks a lot, Aaron, and um, right. we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for all you do, Andy. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.